The Partially Examined Life relies on your support. To find out how to help in ways that are cheap or even free, please visit partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a podcast by some guys who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 183 is something like, what is freedom? Or maybe if we disapprove of certain behaviors, to what extent should that result in legislation or social pressure censoring those behaviors? And we read John Stuart Mill's On Liberty from 1859. For more information and link to the text, please check out partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Linsenmeyer with enough spontaneity to help develop the excellence of the race in Madison, Wisconsin. Seized on the Nietzsche here. This is Wes Allen in Cambridge, Massachusetts. This is Dylan Casey in Middleton, Wisconsin. All right, we are down a Seth today, but we will do our best to express the liberty and diversity that he would bring to the show. Does that work? Yeah. This is a text we could have done a long time ago, and we should have, because it's awesome, and people should memorize it from beginning to end. <laughs> I agree. I hope there's, there's not going to be too much agreement. <laughs> on this podcast, because as we all know, we need opinions to be adversarial in order to maintain a high degree of comprehension and force. You're wrong, Mark. No one should read this. This book sucks, but I'm only saying that <laughs> <laughs> in order to highlight its greatness. No. <laughs> That's the esoteric teaching. <laughs> That's right. You're right. So I thought that this was probably... You know, when I thought about this in passing as an episode idea before, that this would be kind of redundant of things that we'd already done, and I was going to say like Thomas Paine's Common Sense, but I haven't read that either, so I, I don't know if that's actually a good example of the kind of thing that you don't need to read because it's so familiar and just chock full of cliches or whatever. But this is longer than I expected, and it really makes a great argument for Mill being a much better thinker than I thought he was based on just the utilitarianism short book. We did that in a very early episode, and it's not even the thing that invented utilitarianism. It's just a particularly cogent expression of it, and it makes it a little more reasonable by introducing things like the distinction between higher and lower pleasures. So it can't just be that the action that brings the greatest animal pleasure to the greatest number is always the one that people should engage in, and also introduces the, the idea of that there might be certain rights that we want to establish, certain general rules that we want to obey, in other words, rule utilitarianism as opposed to act utilitarianism, which is obviously wrong because it just leads to these, well, what if in this particular case, if I shoot somebody, that'll help a bunch of other people? Well, I should definitely do that. Well, no. In general, we should have a rule that we don't shoot people. And I, I just feel like everybody who reads utilitarianism should be forced to read On Liberty at the same time to get a more complete picture, because the two seem to be things that would conflict, right? If utilitarianism, the idea, society should do whatever's going to bring the most good to the most people. And that doesn't seem like it leaves a lot of room for individual liberty, people making mistakes. Like, wouldn't you want to correct people's mistakes so that then you'd have the most happiness for the most people? In fact, if you're going to do something that's destructive to yourself, shouldn't we step in and prevent that from happening so that we have the most happiness for the most people? And But on liberty, without actually contradicting utilitarianism, gives a great framework and some very solid guidelines for why you would, in general, not want to interfere with people's liberty. Yes, who would have thought one of the world's foremost proponents of utilitarianism would be also one of the foremost proponents of individual rights? 
Not something I think we commonly hear about Mill, at least in popular discussions. There are some interesting qualifications. I think it's one of the ways in which the book, as Mark said, ends up being intellectually very interesting is it's not black and white in all these cases. And certainly the case he's making are a strong argument for a lot of individual latitude. But it's also true that there are obligations of the individual not just to not harm other people, but there are reasons to expect people to make contributions to society. It's not a simple-minded screed for individualism either. There are two maxims he's really arguing for, and I'll just read a quote. It's actually from the last chapter, from chapter five, Applications, but I just like the way he formulates them here. The first one is, the individual is not accountable to society for his actions insofar as these concern the interests of no person but himself. Advice, instruction, persuasion, and avoidance by other people, if thought necessary by them for their own good, are the only measures by which society can justifiably express its dislike or disapprobation of his conduct. And second, for such actions as are prejudicial to the interests of others, the individual is accountable and may be subjected either to social or to legal punishments if societies have no opinion that the one or the other is requisite for its protection. So that's a kind of legalistic way of expressing it that is summing up a lot of the individual points he's elaborated in the first four chapter before we get to this last chapter, which is called Applications. Well, he, he does give the harm principle like on the 10th page, which is his fundamental principle. Well, do you want to read the earlier formulation of it? Sure. The object of this essay is to assert one very simple principle. As entitled to govern absolutely the dealings of society with the individual in the way of compulsion and control, whether the means used be physical force in the form of legal penalties or the moral coercion of public opinion. That principle is that the sole end for which mankind are warranted, individually or collectively, in interfering with the liberty of action of any of their number, is self-protection. That the only purpose for which power can be rightfully exercised over any member of a civilized community against his will is to prevent harm to others. His own good, either physical or moral, is not a sufficient warrant. He cannot rightfully be compelled to do or forbear because it will be better for him to do so, because it will make him happier, because, in the opinions of others, to do so would be wise or even right. We've returned to a kind of conflict that we've discussed many times on this podcast, which is between the right and the good, or a deontological sort of ethics that emphasizes the importance of people's rights, and then maybe a utilitarian or virtue-based ethics, which seems to put the good of the many above individual rights. Of course, it's not that we have to simply choose one or the other, it's that they're in conflict, and we have to draw some lines with respect to not just government compulsion, but even social compulsion about where those sorts of things are applicable and where they aren't. When does the collective good actually warrant compulsion, whether social or legal? And it tempers a little bit the quote, I think, that Mark gave at the end, which talks about the way in which we can use persuasion and public approbation to voice displeasure or tell people what we think of them, we don't have the right to compel them. Just before this section here, he spends a fair bit of time talking about the force of social mores that aren't legal. It's not a question of laws, but a question of social pressure. And that is being as much of a problem often as legal pressure. I think that comes out to be a kind of a complicated topic for Mill because he goes back and forth on it throughout the whole thing where Talking about there being principles involved is 
it's a messy business, even in this, you know, 130 page book. You don't get clear lines, but you get principles about where to draw the line. And I think in the end, it ends up being fuzzy in many of the most interesting cases. So you mentioned his talk of social tyranny earlier on, and that's on page six of my edition, just to read a brief quote on that, because I think it's important in the sense that the way free speech is often discussed, the way the objections are often phrased is that, well, social coercion and shaming is actually a tool for the good. Yes, the opponents of free speech, or what they call free speech absolutism, admit We can't pass laws against free speech, but socially shaming is an appropriate way to do that. And I feel almost a little ashamed of myself that it's been so long since I read Mill that I didn't think back to this text as addressing the question of social tyranny and social shaming just as much as legalistic or governmental oppression of speech. But anyway, just to read the social tyranny part. Society can and does execute its own mandates, and if it issues wrong mandates instead of right, or any mandates at all in things which it ought not to meddle, it practices a social tyranny more formidable than many kinds of political oppression, since though not usually upheld by such extreme penalties, it leaves fewer means of escape, penetrating much more deeply into the details of life and enslaving the soul itself. Protection, therefore, against the tyranny of the magistrate is not enough. There needs protection also against the tyranny of the prevailing opinion and feeling, against the tendency of society to impose, by other means than civil penalties, its own ideas and practices as rules of conduct on those who dissent from them. There is a limit to the legitimate interference of collective opinion with individual independence. He ends up wanting to draw the line, like maybe his prime example is drunkenness. He doesn't think that the state should be paternal in outlawing liquor in preventing you from getting liquor. Or being drunk. Yeah, being drunk. Insofar as you are drunk on the job, that's an obvious separate issue. Insofar as you are can drunk and drive, those are clearly places where you're going to affect or potentially affect other people. But just drunkenness in itself, yeah, maybe we don't approve as a society of people who just are drunk all the time. And there are going to be natural consequences, natural social consequences. That's He used that word natural that will come out of that, that you will be shunned. You will not be invited to parties if you're going to be drunk all the time. You're not going to get good jobs. It's its own punishment. That's why it's bad. (laughs) But to then go beyond that, so I guess this shaming in particular, like I don't know if he uses that term, but if it has overarching effects, like we go out of our way to punish the person beyond the punishment that just being a drunkard would bring you, then that's when we've crossed the line. That's when there's a social tyranny at work. And that's not to say that we can't morally be against being drunk all the time. But just because we are morally against something doesn't mean just that we can't outlaw it, but that we shouldn't make the lives of the people who we morally disapprove of worse than they would otherwise be. So, for instance, if there's someone who's drunk all the time and you can not want to associate with them, but what you can't do is you can't go and get people to stop providing them cable service. (laughs) Or say, well, you know, you got to stop selling them food or something like that. Yeah, so this gets at the tension. It makes boycotts an interesting problem. Yeah, earlier on, he sort of rails against the possible effects of social tyranny. But in the case of drunkenness, it simply is the case that such people are going to be shunned and I think even shamed by society and that Mill is okay 
with that particular case. And it's harmful not just because it's the social punishment is inherent, of course, it's harmful because something Mill talks about a lot, because of the way it damages human potentialities and turns us into lesser human beings and destroys our lives. So I think there are two points to emphasize here. One part of it is you can rightfully be punished for either committing acts or failing to do the things that need to be done under your obligations as a result of your drunkenness. So it's not that your drunkenness would be the thing that you're being punished for, but if you are being a public nuisance as a result of your drunkenness. Or he says a policeman should be punished for being drunk on duty is one of his examples. Yeah, those are all things like your job, you know, driving while drunk. So what you would be guilty of and what would be illegal is to drive while drunk, not to be drunk. So the social effects of your drunkenness. Yes. And so that gets to the next point, which is that you, for instance, if you do not fulfill your obligations as a parent, you can be held accountable for that as a result of your drunken behavior if you aren't taking care of your children. And it may be because of your drunkenness, but you would be failing in that obligation, in this case to society and to people who you have tied yourself to, for failing to do the requisite activity to take care of them. But you're not being held account for your drunkenness itself. Even if you were to, the sort of social punishment of not wanting to be around people who are drunk, so you get shunned for being drunk. I take Mill to make a distinction between not being around somebody because they're drunk and not being around because someone you've labeled as a drunkard. And this seems to be like where the line of potentiality that you're talking about. They're not being shamed for an act of being drunken, but they're being shamed for being a drunkard. So again, the critical distinction between here is the effect on oneself and the effect on others. Mm Mm-hmm. And the effect on others is rightly we can compel people if they're really damaging, harming others to do certain things, but we can't compel them to do things if they're just harming themselves. We can't compel them for their own good. But I do think he's saying we do rightly have a low opinion of other people because they harm themselves. Yes. And we do rightly regulate their conduct in some sense. You know, part of our conduct really, it's predicated on not or a lot of our conduct on not people not having a low opinion of us. And it's not a bad thing if we say drunkenness is bad, or even if we shun people because of it. So he says, for instance, on page 69 of my edition, we have a right also in various ways to act upon our unfavorable opinion of anyone, not to the oppression of his individuality, but in the exercise of ours. We're not bound, for example, to seek his society. We have a right to avoid it. We have a right to choose society most acceptable to us. We have a right, and it may be our duty, to caution others against him. In these various modes, a person may suffer severe, very severe penalties at the hands of others for faults which directly concern himself. But he suffers these penalties only insofar as they are natural and, as it were, the spontaneous consequences of the faults themselves. So in this sense, shame, the very thing that we can't regulate at a legislative level, we can regulate socially. He actually is saying that despite the fact that there are enormous potential problems that what he calls social tyranny. So Dylan, as you mentioned much earlier, that's a really interesting tension in this book that's not easily resolved. Of the many lines that Mill acknowledges, I think this one is the hardest. When is shaming the right way to go and when isn't it? So for instance, you know, the whole Nazi debate that was going on about the normalization of 
Nazism by doing a profile in the New York Times, a family man who also happens to be a Nazi, or more relevant here is if someone says something that we think is racist on Twitter or sexist or something like that, do we gather our group of followers together and try to shame them and make it unacceptable that way? Or do we develop a persuasive argument and treat what they've done as a mode of discourse? Is what they've done more like speech or is it more like being drunk? And if it's more like speech and something that we're obligated to confront, unless we suffer for it in the many ways that Mill says we would, and we shame them, then we've engaged in social tyranny. But if it's more like drunkenness, then it's just natural consequences. You know, and something I've been thinking about a lot because it's not an easy question. Yeah, I think you put it well, Wes. There's a lot of latitude in Mill for, let's call them, intellectual liberty and liberty of speech that he wants to have it be really, really wide. And the amount of time he spends, particularly on things like religious freedom or religious disagreements or Puritanism and stuff like that, and his love affair with diversity of both opinion and voiced opinion makes him you know, a very, very strong free speech advocate. On the other hand, this line would be between sort of socially acceptable behavior and he isn't quite the same as that. So he wants to allow for maybe more licentiousness and you know, poor behavior than would typically be thought of, but not with the same kind of latitude as there is for speaking, particularly on political and social issues, as opposed to activities. So he does give one sort of bit of guidance on this, and it's actually something that's built into our legal system already, and that is to worry not about the content of the speech exactly, but to think about the speech as a speech act. What is it doing exactly? So for instance, you know, it's the whole yelling fire in a crowded theater principle. So he says on page 50 of my edition, even opinions lose their immunity when the circumstances in which they are expressed are such as to constitute their expression a positive instigation to some mischievous act. An opinion that corn dealers are starvers of the poor or that private property is robbery ought to be unmolested when simply circulated through the press, but may justly incur punishment when delivered orally to an excited mob assembled before the house of a corn dealer or when handed about among the same mob in the form of a placard. So the same sort of speech, we wouldn't ask ourselves whether Nazi speech is allowed or allowable. We would ask, does it come in the form of an argument that's published for readers or something like that? Or does it come in the form of someone who's trying to insult someone, someone who's trying to arouse a mob or intimidate people or things like those are the sorts of questions we have to ask in any case of speech. So here it's a guideline for the legal question. Does it help us as a guideline for the social shaming, social coercion question? And I think it's difficult because this guideline focuses specifically on the effects done to others. So a drunkard, again, it's because they harm themselves that those natural consequences follow. But someone being a racist on Twitter, you know, arguably they are maybe engaging in a different sort of speech act if to say they're harassing someone than someone who publishes their Nazi argument in a newsletter. So in one case, it may be shaming may be the approach, and, the, and in the other, the approach may be to actually have an argument with the Nazi and not simply let that sort of opinion fester in the dark. Yeah, that seemed to be the comparable case, this corn dealer one, to a lot of what we might have in mind now. And 
I guess there's a question that he doesn't really consider maybe because of the different environment in which arguments could be traded that with the internet, it could just be ubiquitous. I think he would be sympathetic to the idea that it's fine to put forth any kind of argument, no matter how heinous other people find it. But if the world becomes full of such things, then that could be sort of like pollution. (laughs) There could be a group benefit to, you know, especially if it's coming in the form of technologically aided, the troll farming kind of, you know, it's not even a real person arguing for a point. There, I think there's this model of people putting themselves behind arguments. This is not something that Mill spells out, but I could definitely see the idea. If something is anonymous and done in mass, then it's not a good faith effort to actually convince other people. Then it's, it's an effort to incite them to potentially to some mischief. And in, in particular, since, you know, the history of these kind of things, you can argue different models of, you know, that race is a real thing or race is not a real thing. But given the history where this kind of thing is argued right before a lynching occurs, then one could make a pretty good argument that it's okay to take measures to say, we're just going to do something to say on Facebook, cut down the amount of you know, we're just not going to allow, we're going to censor out the N-word or something like that. Like, what do you think about that practically comes to measures that particular communities might take? Of course, they have the right to take it. It's, you know, Facebook owns Facebook. We own our site and we tend to have no problem. It, it seems like it just depends on the size and the place in society. Like, are there other places that people could go to make this argument, whether it's okay for me to police my own little backyard in that way? If I disallow something on my particular Facebook group, there are plenty of other places that somebody could go and voice that same thing. So like, there's really no harm done by my cleaning up my yard, but like Facebook at large, which controls such a big portion or just, you know, Google putting sort of rules. I don't know. What do you think about that? These are complicated examples because they might, things like Facebook and Google might rise to the level of being public utilities implicitly Mm -hmm. or trusts. And then it's <laughs> it's a much more complicated issue. If you're running your own small newspaper, of course, you can have an editorial guideline which prohibits the N-word. And naturally, I think we would agree that the government can prohibit the N-word in some publication. In this case, we're a private company, which may also turn out to be a public utility in some sense, makes these prohibitions, I think it's very, very becomes very complicated. So obviously right now, Twitter can ban whoever it wants to, and even shadow ban conservatives, which is what conservatives think it's doing. If we were to decide Twitter were so an important a mechanism of disseminating opinion that banning people from it were like banning people from using printing presses or something like that, then we'd have to have another discussion. Well, maybe the, the key to unlock what Mill would say about this is his very short comment about decency. This is right after the drunkenness part in the last chapter. Again, there are many acts which being directly injurious only to the agents themselves, ought not to be legally interdicted, but which, if done publicly, are a violation of good manners and coming thus within the category of offensive against others, may rightfully be prohibited. Of this kind are offenses against decency, on which it is unnecessary to dwell. So that's a little disappointing. This is kind of one of the main things Dylan had characterized him as tolerating more potential licentiousness. Well, decency, okay, so clearly what he has in mind is sex is okay. Sex in the street, maybe not okay. There are a violation of good manners and coming thus within the category of offensive against others. We're getting into, usually the harm principle is held to be distinct from the offense principle. And 
Mill is very clear that it might just be offensive to me that you are an atheist. That's the example he, he gives. And that's not okay for me to come down on you in any way, you know, apart from the ways that we've talked about, I could shun you. I don't like atheists, but I can't say atheists can't get a job. I can't say atheists can't give testimony in court. These are actual things, you know, that were going on in jurisdictions that he was connected with. Yep. This is another outright conflict in the text. Here he talks about offenses against others elsewhere. He thinks that the offense principle is liable to be badly, badly abused. As a sort of illustration of this kind of example, there's a TV series on Amazon called The Amazing Mrs. Maisel, which is a fictional story of a woman in the 50s who becomes a stand-up comic. And Lenny Bruce is a character in the story. But she's playing these clubs, and early on in the series, she gets arrested by the police for public indecency because of you know her cursing and, and stuff like that. And that seems to be exactly the kind of thing that Mill is adamantly against. Adamantly against her being cracked down for it or adamantly against her doing it? No, it's adamantly against her being cracked down for it, yeah. So I take him to be having this tension about where the line of public decency is, right? And so there would be a difference for Mill between, as you said, Mark, sex in the street versus sex behind closed doors. Or certain kinds of language and expression in a club versus standing out in front of an elementary school. There are differences there between those things. So a broad-brushed argument against decency and saying, well, you know, you're cursing in this club and so we're going to arrest you because you're offending public decency. That seems to me is something that Mill would be stoutly against. But if there are laws against that kind of language, you know, in the middle of the park, that might not be wrong from Mill's perspective. So here's what he says on page 46 of my edition. Okay. It is fit to take notice of those who say that the free expression of all opinions should be permitted on condition that the manner be temperate and do not pass the bounds of fair discussion. Much might be said on the impossibility of fixing where these supposed bounds are to be placed. For if the test be offense to those whose opinion is attacked, I think experience testifies that this offense is given whenever the attack is telling and powerful, and that every opponent who pushes hard, and whom they find it difficult to answer, appears to them, if he shows any strong feeling on the subject, an intemperate opponent. I just think it's really important because, you know, a lot of people will say today that, well, speech can be violence, or that speech has harmed me by offending my dignity and therefore there have to be limits on that. I think that's with a certain segment of the left, especially at universities, I think that idea is quite popular and of course ridiculed by conservatives and libertarians. Mill comes very strong that diversity of opinion and diversity of expression of opinion is a fundamental good. So, you know, there are a couple of different themes. You know, the harm principle is one of them. Another is the idea that just having lots of different vigorous opinion in the world and in our communities is only for our good because we are progressive entities and that we are striving to become better and more than who we are. And having a soup of that diversity of opinion and a diversity of expressed opinion only contributes positively to that progression. He says in the introduction, 
The only freedom which deserves the name is that of pursuing our own good in our own way, so long as we do not attempt to deprive others or impede their efforts to obtain it. Each is the proper guardian of his own health, whether bodily or mental or spiritual. Mankind are greater gainers by suffering each other to live as seems good to themselves than by compelling each to live as seems good to the rest. And then later on, he's praising eccentricity and against the tyranny of opinion. Eccentricity is always abounded when and where strength of character has abounded, and the amount of eccentricity in a society has generally been proportional to the amount of genius, mental vigor, and moral courage which it contained. So he wants to see lots of different opinions, he wants to see lots of eccentrics, and that's a sign of his mental and intellectual vigor within a community. And he wants to give voice to people who are wrong. It's not even that they may be right. So the, it's sort of worth going over at some of the arguments in the, the first chapter and the structure of that. But the sort of overview of the chapter is that free speech is important really mainly because it's freedom of conscience requires it. So the overall, just three basic reasons, the arguments for free speech, mm-hmm. is that the first one is that we may sort of shut out the truth. And in doing so, in silencing the opinions of others who we think are, are wrong or immoral, we assume our own infallibility and we ought not to assume that. We ought to assume that we could be wrong and that we could benefit from being corrected by others. The second reason is that even opinions that are false may contain a portion of the truth and that we need this sort of collision between you know, even if the prevailing opinion is kind of extreme on the one end and the opposing opinion is extreme on the other, we sort of need the collision to balance each other out and to sort of supply each partial truth to supply to the other what it needs. And then the third thing is just that even if received opinion, even if what society thinks and what's prevailing opinion is the whole truth, that we can't properly keep that truth alive in the real sense unless it's contested. And that means that we can't really know something unless we subjected it to scrutiny, unless we can think of all the objections to it and reply to those objections. And then also that it can't really have any influence on our conduct and character if it just takes the form of a catechism or it just takes the form of something that we repeat to ourselves in this uncomprehending way. So we need untruth in society. Not only do we need untruth, we need immorality. We need people out there advocating immoral things. But again, we get to the idea of sort of how much is too much, <laughs> that it would be completely sufficient. You know, so drunkenness is, again, one of the examples. That he, that's not an experiment for life. We want diversity, so we have all these different experiments for life, and that's what pushes society forward is people try different things. They have different ideas. They live different ideas, and they present examples to the rest of us that maybe then give us, you know, the mass of people who just go with tradition, eventually that might be shifted by these things. Drunkenness is not an experiment. It's not a cutting edge experiment. Lots of people have tried being drunk all the time, and that's sort of been shown to be a dead end. We'll ask Charles Bukowski. As far as Mill is concerned, as far as Mill is concerned, at least. There are exceptions. My my exception doesn't, doesn't prove anything. That's one of the responses that he gives. You might say, we've tried this kind of thing. It doesn't work. Well, are you sure that it never works? Like that is, you know, we have to be fallible about all of these things that it could be that no matter how much we think that how much social 
agreement we have that some particular kind of behavior doesn't work. Well, if there are a lot of people doing it, then clearly there actually isn't that much agreement. And that might give some idea that the prohibitive claim is not the whole truth, that there's something that the inveterate drunken poets or something, there might be a way of doing this that actually does constitute a significant experiment for living. But if you accept that that it really is, yeah, that's a dead end. That just like, let's try suicide. Like, (laughs) no, we don't want that to spread. And so can there be, if something like that basically becomes an epidemic, and um, again, comparing this to like, if racist speech becomes an epidemic, is it okay for us to legally or socially take action to staunch that? Well, I think, I mean, he clearly says no. I mean, this is the argument from the utility of, so he addresses this argument of suppressing speech for the sake of utility of that to society. That's on page 20 of my edition. And let's look at what he says. Strange it is that men should admit the validity of arguments for free discussion, but object to their being pushed to an extreme. Not seeing that unless the reasons are good for an extreme case, they're good for any case. And then, so there are, as legend, certain beliefs so useful, not to say indispensable to well-being, that it is much the duty of governments to uphold those beliefs as to protect any other of the interests of society. In a case of such necessity and so directly in the line of their duty, something less than infallibility may, it be, it is maintained, warrant, and even bind governments to act on their own opinion, confirmed by the general opinion of mankind. It is also often argued, and still oftener thought, that none but bad men would desire to weaken these salutary beliefs, and there can be nothing wrong, it is thought, in restraining bad men and prohibiting what only such men would wish to practice. This mode of thinking makes the justification of restraints on discussion not a question of the truth of the doctrines, but of their usefulness. So this is what I take the place that you're going, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, but with the idea that there could be an epidemic of racism and the interests of society, it's not a matter of a discussion of truth or falsity anymore. The interests of society require us to do something about it. And Mill comes to reject that because on the next page he says, the usefulness of an opinion is itself a matter of opinion. You just push this sense of infallibility about moral matters, back one step. So to require that we restrict people's racist speech on the idea that there's an epidemic and society can't tolerate it is already to assume our infallibility about the argument in question. So I think, again, the distinction would have to be drawn along the lines not of content, not of whether speech is specifically racist, but the nature of the speech act. Obviously, we can prohibit racist speech if it's an incitement to kill someone, for instance, or to oppress them in some immediate circumstance. But we could do that with non-racist speech as well. We could do that with speech which is normally, under other circumstances, completely innocuous, like telling people when there's a fire or something like that. There is a fire, and you yell fire in a crowded theater, then yeah, you've done a public good. So it's not the content that's at issue in those cases, it's the speech act. And so The example that Mill uses throughout this book is religion. But because religion is not so live an issue for us, he's just choosing the livest, you know, most controversial issue he can put his finger on. But for us, it's race. And I think people feel so strongly about 
that, that if you were right to write this in this time and place, that if you were to write this book in America today, that's the example you would have to use. Because the question is whether you can get people to agree that, however horrible you think it is to hold certain opinions, that those other people who hold them be allowed to hold them legally and express them. And not just that, that we even benefit by their expression. So I think Mill would say, and, and maybe you guys can correct me if you think I'm wrong about this, but I think Mill would say that we do benefit from people out there making claims that we think are racist. We benefit because we get to rebut those claims. We make sure that they don't simply lie in darkness, that they get expressed, and so they just don't sort of malignantly grow within cancer like a society that they get to be disposed of and processed in some sense. And also that we get to strengthen our own opinions and even maybe our anti-racism is so extreme that we can help give some nuance to it by having to argue with the racists. So that's what I think he would say, that we would only hurt ourselves by simply, through legal enforcement or even through shaming, get rid of the racists altogether. Now, prevent them from intimidating, threatening messing up people's lives, even humiliating others in some contexts, I think there's a lot of argument for that. But to prevent them from publishing their newsletters or their opinions online or whatever, he would think there's harm to that. And even to refrain from engaging them in an intelligent way, I think he would say that engaging those opinions in a sober, intelligent way could actually be beneficial and not just saying, fuck you, racist. Yeah, so clearly he does, as you mentioned, have in mind atheism as just the belief that even to Spinoza, who's arguing for free speech across denominational lines, he seems to think that if you cross the line into just not upholding these things of what he calls the universal religion, and so Mill points this out, that a lot of people, if they, if they go in for tolerance, it starts with religion, and it can vary. It's usually to just to other religions, but then to get all the way to atheists, it's just it's, it's too much. That there's or Mormons. So I'd, I would say Spinoza's universal religion is something like the harm principle, but that's another discussion. Go ahead. Right, right. And so uh, being an atheist, even though you might think that, oh, if you're an atheist, then you don't have any foundation for your ethics and you're going to harm other people. And like that was part of the basis for their being offended by someone being an atheist is the kind of person this is supposed to result in. And whether that is the case or not, like, is a claim that should be argued about. And so that works very well. Yeah, you should let people be atheists, even if you just want to argue against them and show them that atheism leads to all this bad stuff. Like, so there's no problem with that. Well, I mean, it's just like drunkenness, right? Is that you can hold people accountable for their actions, not their thoughts and expressed opinions. So if it's the case that you're an atheist and you go out and rob a store and kill people and any other kinds of things, you should be held accountable for breaking those laws, so, not for being an atheist. Maybe, maybe driving while atheist. You could be <laughs> driving while atheist, yeah, sure. Anyway, you, you could see him, right, along those lines. I know that driving while atheist is a joke, but like being a preschool teacher while atheist or something, like maybe somebody could make exactly that, that could be a, a topic of discussion in Mill's time. And these things are going to change depending on what the public mores are. Well, it's like allowing gay men to be part of the Boy Scouts, right? So I think, though, 
He talks later on about allowing prostitution versus allowing you to be a pimp. There's a difference between being a dealer and being a user. Yeah. So if someone who proselytizes atheism is, in fact, there's some sense in which they are morally damaging society, or one is afraid that they might morally damage society, I think in in that case, that's not an argument for prohibiting it. And again, we should move back and forth between the shame prohibition, the social regulation of it versus the legal regulation, because I don't think Mill even wants to see a shaming of atheism out of existence. To, to make it so socially consequential to be a heretic that everyone keeps quiet about their heretical beliefs is something he explicitly says is, is an evil. Well, even in the case of prostitution and, say, drug dealing or he spends more time on alcohol, being a publican. <laughs> he seems to be more concerned with the individual corruption that could go along with it, not necessarily the pimp or the madam and the unpublican, but of the people that they're making money off of. So, for instance, if you're a publican and you cultivate drunkenness amongst your patrons in order to make money, or the canonical example of the drug dealer who gets people hooked on purpose so that they can continue to get money from them. That's both a social bad and also a harm to the person that you are corrupting, essentially. And the same thing would be true for prostitution. It would be a difference for Mill if somebody is engaging in selling sex of their own free will versus being coerced. And that's sort of the the nub of the argument often regarding things like prostitution and drugs is to what extent are you exercising your liberty in that activity versus are you being not just corrupted, but essentially being, you're being enslaved by that activity. So I want to contrast though, how being an atheist might be different than being a racist. And I think so, it, it seems like it comes down to the nature of the individual speech acts, the racist speech acts. Actually, I think racism is pretty comparable to those, if you have a religious belief that anybody that does not believe in God is going to go to hell, or let's just say atheists are going to go to hell. And so if you just hold that and you argue it, that's fine. You could hold that and argue, but it, it is offensive. Like when you run into someone who is born again or whatever and just thinks, yeah, I just, I'm sorry, I think you're going to... It doesn't even have to be that extreme. It could just be like, you're morally inferior because you don't share my religion. Like. In the same way that you, you're morally inferior because you don't share my race. It's a pretty analogous example. Yes. Okay. So, but, right, Mill is going to want to shame the act of shaming itself, right? That is essential to his liberal project is that we don't have a tyranny of shaming. And again, you can do some shaming. We've talked a little about what sort of legitimate shaming amounts to, the sort of things that naturally come out of, and, you know, you can express your disapproval, but if it becomes Again, I like the notion of pollution. If it becomes a matter of you just can't walk around without people littering shame on you everywhere you go, like that is how in our white privilege episode, yeah, how blacks feel or felt and or how many of them in many different environments feel on a daily basis. So in that sense, the racism itself in the ways it is expressed is a form of shaming and you could definitely even see that, you know, very much comparable to the thing that Mill is afraid that the way atheists are being treated in his society, like it's okay if you religious people are not atheists and you think atheism is morally bad 
and you have other objections to atheism, but you can't let this show up in your behavior such as to make it a hell on earth for the people that hold that view. And so it would be the same. So just expressing racist opinions is helping to create that environment that makes it horrible for these people to live in. In that sense, I could see there'd be a lot of room on Mill's grounds to restrict the kinds, you know, again, maybe not legally, but like to have very strong moral pressures against certain times and places and whatever to express these kind of things. Yeah, I think there's a distinction to be made here. So if you're a drunkard, you might get shamed and shunned in your personal life, right? In your personal relations. But in your professional life as a pilot, you're fine. <laughs> yeah, and your professional, I mean to include that. So in your individual relations, let's say. And then the same thing goes for being a racist. You would be absolutely ostracized from certain communities, although you could find communities that agree with you and be part of those communities. But then there's the question of shaming within the higher public discourse. So, in other words, at the level of our writing about things and thinking about things, do we simply adhere to that sort of shaming? In other words, the racist comes and writes their screed about the inferiority of a particular race. Do we simply not engage? Is that just simply not a discussion? And we say, yes, this opinion is so obviously wrong that we don't even need to rebut it. We just don't talk about it. I think Mill would think that's the wrong way to go. So I think he could agree both, Mark, with the idea that on a personal level, shame could have this positive regulative function when it comes to racism in daily social relations, but at the level of discourse, especially the more abstract you get, then engagement is called for and not just saying, oh, your, your opinion is obviously wrong and so we don't engage in. Which it's difficult to, of course, have the stomach for that when the same things keep coming up. And maybe that's a reason for having, just like the various Catholic institutions as he describes, would create kind of manuals for rebutting the opposition. So you could just more or less point to that. So you don't have to actually spend your time necessarily. It would be better if you learn the manuals and you can use those things to smack these things down. But really there should be a, so I'm just, I'm just thinking like, you know, whenever we bring up anything like white privilege or whatever, people pull out this whole bell curve Oh, it's just objectively the average IQ of blacks is lower than of whites. So therefore, all these pushes for if there's an education gap, then we should expect that. Blah, blah, blah. So like that should just be the kind of thing that, yeah, I don't respond to that. I erase that because it's just so tedious. We hear the same thing, but it would be better to have a stock response to that to just thwack it down and cut and paste it in every time. Well, okay. According to Mill, no, it's better to actually have to argue those points and not simply, in, in order to sharpen one's own opinions, and to doing it repeatedly, I don't think is a bad thing. But leaving that aside, you presented that argument in a pretty tendentious way, because I think there is, so it, it wasn't actually that long ago that it was a legitimate conversation to have about whether what primarily ails African Americans in society is socioeconomic problems, which by themselves are actually pretty trenchant and tend to perpetuate themselves no matter what racial group you belong to, or if they're a result of 
racism, where racism now can mean a lot of different things. It can mean simple inequality of disparities, or it can mean actual discrimination, or it can mean subtle biases or something that's systemic or institutional. The word racism means lots of things. And so part of what I'm pointing to here is that I do actually think it's a legitimate conversation if a conservatives, by the way, do make these rebuttals all the time. And I don't think they're inherently, it's not inherently racist to say, well, actually, some of the problems are just trenchant socioeconomic problems, which don't have anything to do with racism traditionally conceived until you redefine racism to include them. And maybe it's not helpful to simply lump them together like that. It's helpful to know from a perspective of policy, whether you're trying to ferret out racists, for instance, within an organization or implicitly racist procedures within an organization, and whether you're trying to address socioeconomic problems by having the state intervene in helpful ways for people who are disadvantaged. Those are two different things. So that's one rebuttal I would give to that. And so you can see how, even though a racist might use that to their benefit, right? Not just bell curve stuff, but the socioeconomic stuff that I've just mentioned. Racists might jump on that and want to use that to their benefit. But that still doesn't mean we can't ignore the possibility of some grain of truth in what they're saying, which is precisely Mill's point. We could actually benefit. Our position could become more nuanced if we acknowledge that. And I will say, by the way, like the white privilege opinion, I mean, the whole concept of white privilege, I think, is tremendously harmful and really misguided. But I think it can be helpful to have to talk about that and rebut that in a reasonable way, to really analyze it. And I tried to do that during that episode, to paint that position in its strongest form in the way Mill says we ought to do, to try and see its merits. And there are actually interesting merits to the idea around something you mentioned before, Mark, this concept of humiliation. So, I don't know. Is that convincing at all? (laughs) I didn't know that you exactly were making an argument. (laughs) I thought you were illustrating the... Yeah. I'm arguing against Mark's idea that we should simply reject out of hand certain arguments as racist. Well, I, I didn't think Mark was saying that as much as that there gets to be a point where it becomes tiresome. And I think there's something like that in Mill. And these kinds of controversies have a certain kind of bubbling point. There'll always be ones that come to the fore because they're part of the current conversation or part of real discrimination or social upheaval going on. And other times when there's a sense in which it's basically been decided. And that might be a social tyranny or it might be just that, well, you know, it's basically been decided, you know. Well, he's against the whole idea of it's just been decided. So, I mean, the whole end of the first chapter is him saying, even if we have the whole truth, it must remain contested to remain alive. We might possess the truth in a really stupid way, in a really stupid, unhelpful way. And the only way we can prevent falling into that trap is to have it continually contested, to remain engaged with the opposition always. I agree with that in, in principle, Wes, but let me, let me give you an example. Like, it seems to me that it's going to be pretty far in between where we're going to say it's a legitimate discussion to have about the sexual slavery of children. And I am certain that there are people in places and times that they would say, well, you know what? It is right for certain classes that we should be able to have sex with children. 
and use them in that manner. And I think that there's a very strong argument against that, right? But it may not be the case that I have to make that argument over and over and over again all the time. Right. And if it became in particular, every conversation like this happens in a particular venue. And if a particular venue is getting overloaded with posts or whatever of people arguing in favor of the sexual slavery of children, then it seems like at some point you run into what Mill would consider an offense against decency. That it's not that you should never, never respond to that kind of thing at all, but that it should be okay to, you know, it shouldn't be necessary to continually respond to that. Or maybe it should just be easy that like, yes, you should always be ready with the counter argument for that. But it's just, it's very simple to explain for so many reasons why <laughs> sexual slavery of children is wrong. So it's not like that occupies too I can't much of your I'm intellectual to life. With you guys about the sexual slavery of children. <laughs> well, before you jump into that, can I just want to, the point that Mark was making, I thought it was also tied to our kind of media right now, where you would have the ability to subvert conversation itself by having there being an appearance of a predominance of an opinion that is actually engineered by a small number of people. And that's a kind of corruption of conversation, a corruption of the public exchange of ideas that maybe we should talk about what we think Mill would think about that. I would expect that he thinks that that would be a perversion of the actual marketplace of ideas. I, I think Mill would absolutely disagree with what you guys are advocating right now. I mean, you guys have done what he warned against, which is you've fixed on the most obvious abhorrent opinions. This is precisely the, the trap that people fall into. They say, but, but wait, there are these really obviously abhorrent opinions. We don't need to discuss those. There may not even need to be freedom of speech with regard to those. It's the worst opinions that require the most protection. Wes, you're mischaracterizing what I'm saying altogether. So it's not that, in fact, I explicitly said that it's not that you shouldn't be able to express that opinion. It's just that there is some kind of frequency that goes on with it, right? There's, there's some kind of, it's not that I'm going to say, oh, you don't, we're going to make a law that you can't express it. That's not what I'm advocating. I'm saying that it gets tiresome to have to, I should be able to, as the editor of some magazine, say, look, you know, I'm just not going to give you time for that. Well, that's fine if you're editor of the magazine, but I'm, I'm talking about this extensive argument that Mill makes that we remain engaged, even if we have the whole truth, with even the most stupid false opinions, because unless we do that, we can't retain in any intelligent way our own true opinions. We can't know them as fully as we would, might know them otherwise. They can't be as embedded in our character, in our heart and mind. They won't influence our conduct as much unless they are fully active. And the only way they can be fully active is to be in this adversarial relationship. So, yes, obviously, child sexual slavery is wrong. Obviously, no one, almost no one is going to disagree with that. And obviously, there are certain contexts in which it's, I don't know if there could be situations of incitement or whatever, but if something constituted a speech act, which was actually a matter of harm, you would prohibit it. But I don't think there's a good reason not to engage. I mean, the good reason would be that the argument for it is so flimsy and shallow that one's rebuttal need not be very detailed. But I'm sure child sexual slavery has been some sort of case example in many sophisticated philosophical arguments. In other words, people have learned 
by having to rebut that, even something so obvious. You could learn a lot by having to systematically spell out one's beliefs in that. So for instance, to someone who rejected the very notion of moral truths, and there are philosophers out there who hold that opinion, then the rejection of anything on moral grounds is simply meaningless. And that goes for child sexual slavery as well. So that intuition becomes an important bone of contention, that intuition in that kind of debate. That's the best example I can think of now. That sounds like a good place to stop part one, and folks can come back next week and hear the rest, or become a partially examined life citizen at partiallyexaminedlife.com and hear the citizen version to hear it right now. <laughs> <laughs>